Hey, what's going on, podcast family? We're back with another episode of Clinical Pearls. For those of you who know, I'm at an academic center, and we're taping this in August the 8th, 2022. And for those of you that are affiliated with academic centers, you know what happens every July through September. Yep, brand new people walk through the wards. I love it, although it can be a little stressful. We've got brand new clinical medical students starting their third year, and we've got brand new interns who were just medical students not long ago. So in this episode, I have one of those individuals with me right now who's going to co-host this episode. So with me, I have... Casey Mitchell. I'm a third year medical student at Texas A&M. All right, Casey, so you've been the third year all of just a few weeks, and I know we haven't even covered this topic, but we're going to cover it because just this month in August 2022, the FDA approved a brand new medication for this chronic, debilitating, horrible condition that affects so many women of reproductive age. We're talking about endometriosis. So Casey, get ready because we're going to talk about this new approved medication called Mifimbri to treat this condition. Casey, are you familiar with endo at all? Yes, I am familiar with it. And, I mean, how so? Because you've studied it. Hopefully you don't have it. Uh, we're not doing any HIPAA issues here. But how are you familiar with this? Um, I've studied it a little bit. And then I also have some personal friends that are affected by this condition. No, I'm sure you do. Because it's so prevalent in the community. And that's why having any new medication out there that's evidence-based and proven is a welcome tool in our tool belt. So get ready, guys. We're going to talk about the new medication FDA approved for endo called Myfimbri. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, Casey, right off the bat, endo is not something that's obscure. It's totally out there. And depends on who you read, it can be prevalent as much as 10% of the female population who's young reproductive age. The problem is some women aren't diagnosed for years after they first present, and some aren't diagnosed at all because they're considered either just having dysmenorrhea or irritable bowel or interstitial cystitis called the painful bladder syndrome. The point is it's, it's, it's a great masquerader, not like syphilis, which is also called the great masquerader, uh, but the point is it can be years before women are actually diagnosed with the true issue. Now, historically, ultrasound was used, Casey, to try to find and make the diagnosis, but that required a lot of skill. It pushes the diagnosis back because you have to schedule surgery. So there has been this big push, this big call over the last several years to use a clinical diagnosis. So cyclic and non-cyclic pelvic pain, pain on intercourse and penetration, obviously pain with periods, um, all of these are markers for the possibility of endometriosis. So having said that, our focus isn't on the diagnosis, it's really more on the treatment. So Casey, give me some ideas here. Based on what you've heard of endo, knowing we haven't covered that officially in your third year of medical school, Give me some ideas. What do you think we should treat endo or we could potentially treat endometriosis with? Could Potentially, you could remove it if you could find all of it. All right. So let's stop right there. So removal, totally correct. And of course, that requires surgery, typically laparoscopy. And there are physicians, Casey, no joke, who say they can remove all the endo scenes. No problem. The problem is that they can remove only what they see. And endometriosis can also have microscopic implants or that that's really deeply embedded that you may not see. And that's why there's this push away from primary surgery. Surgery has its place, especially for infertility. But as primary treatment, to focus more on medical management. 
So having said that, Casey, what are some options you think for treating endo medically? Um, hormonal treatment or like birth control. All right. So hormonal treatment is right. And it's either giving excess hormones to mirror a pseudo-pregnancy or taking hormones away to mirror a pseudo-menopause. So you said birth control, totally right. So continuous birth control pills, Nexplanon, Depo, even the Mirena or progesterone-releasing IUD family, super, super helpful. And remember, we've talked about this in a past podcast, any intrauterine devices that have medicine isn't actually a device, it's an intrauterine system. So there's only one IUD, the copper T, and then the rest of the medicine are intrauterine systems, okay? So we talked about hormones, but tell me what's the opposite. How could we give patient a pseudomenopause state? Best take, guess. Take the hormones away. All right. So take away her own hormones. And traditionally, that was with an injection called Lupron, Luprolide. Lupron is also used for men historically for things like prostate cancer. But Lupron's rough, Casey. I mean, it makes you feel terrible because it puts you in menopause, what's naturally a gradual process over weeks to months to sometimes years, makes you menopausal in a matter of days, very fast, okay? Lupron is a GnRH agonist, but now we've got new medicines that can help. One is an oral medication called Orlissa, that's Lagolix. It is a GnRH antagonist. Now that's been around for a while, super helpful and it does work, and it's a lot less uh, logistically difficult in getting an injection every month. But one of the problems with just a GnRH antagonist like Orlagalix or um, uh, Orlissa is that you still get those menopause hot flashes. You feel terrible. Well, this is where this new medication comes in. And this new medication is called? Myfembri. Right. So Myfembri, not Myfembria. Because that's, <laughs> that's at the end of your fallopian tubes. <laughs> but I always think about that when I see my Fimbri. But my Fimbri is actually not new at all because it's already been FDA approved last year for treating heavy menstrual bleeding due to fibroids. All right? So that's fine. But there's a big catch here. Now there's data that actually shows that that same medication by the same mechanism of action can actually be very helpful for women with endo. And the FDA just approved this August 2022. All right, we're going to get into what this is and how this fits into the treatment algorithm. But there's a big key here. Remember, we're giving this medication to reproductive age women. So these women, though, because they have the potential to get pregnant, even though they're going to be under this medicine, which makes it difficult, they should not be able to conceive because this medication is totally contraindicated with pregnancy. Okay, so it's, it's actually got some data that it could be dangerous for a pregnancy. So everybody in this trial that we're going to talk about had to be on some form of non-hormonal birth control. Is that fine? Okay, so very thing right off the bat is a stick on label is that this is approved for reproductive age, for endometriosis, but these women require some form of non-hormonal birth control. Is that fair? All right, great. So here's what MyFimbri is, right? So it is a GnRH antagonist. It's taken by mouth. It also has extra, uh, estradiol and norethindrone. Now, for those of you listening to the podcast, you can go back into our archives because I actually did a podcast on MyFimbri, I don't know, maybe some months ago, uh, stating uh, a, a quick reminder that even though this has estradiol and norethindrone, the same hormones in combination birth control, this is not birth control. 
Okay, they've got to use separate contraception. But you can go back and take a look at that one that says, my fimbri is not contraception. That's the title of a previous podcast. Just to hammer it in there, these women still need non-hormonal birth control if they're going to be put on this medicine. Good? Good. Wait, Dr. Chapa, I have a quick question. If it's the same hormones used in birth control, how is it not birth control? Oh, super good. Actually, the whole reason that we did that prior podcast, Casey, reminding us that my fimbri is not birth control is because somebody actually told me that. So I had a patient, this is true, came to me on this medication. Uh, and I said, well, what meds are you taking? Oh, I'm on this new medicine. I've got terrible periods, but now they're, you know, they don't bother me a bit. Um, and they told me it's also functions as birth control. So I said, oh, so you're on birth control. I said, no, it's my fimbri, my something, my fimbri. I said, yes. I said, they told you you didn't have to be on birth control. And this patient said, yes, they told me it was the same thing as birth control. Very dangerous. Not good. Right. So this is why, you see, this is why, Casey, we put you through a clinical year of medical school and why we do this podcast. And I'm sure, I'm sure that provider was trying their best. Absolutely. But wow, you're talking about coming to a, a screeching halt in that discussion and I actually showed them the package insert. It's an FDA warning. Do not get pregnant on this. Um, so here's why it's not birth control. It all has to do with levels. So remember, here's why this triple combination medication seems to work. So you have the GnRH antagonist. That's oral, all right? So that's relagalix. So that's meant to drop GnRH production to make you menopausal. But the main reason that women stop these medications is because the side effects of being menopausal is so bad. So enter estradiol. That's why the estradiol is in there. But at very low levels, just enough to take away the vasomotor symptoms. But you can't take estrogen by itself because it hits the uterus and can make it have endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial intrapathelial neoplasia. So now you have to add the progestin. So while it's the same medications that goes into hormonal birth control pills, it's the combination and dosages that make pregnancy, well, even though hard to do it, not impossible and dangerous in that case. Does that make sense? That does make sense. All right. All to say, so the data that just came out uh, from the FDA was based on two trials called SPIRIT-1 and SPIRIT-2, like spirits, like woohoo. <laughs> so those are phase three studies. So for those of you who don't know how the FDA process works, there's phase one, which is well, preclinical, and then phase one, which is experimental, phase two, which is a small cohort for safety, and then typically a phase three is called a pivotal trial, and that's what the FDA looks at to say, well, has safety been proven, and has the effect been greater than placebo? That's a phase three trial. Well, these trials were published in the Lancet, and the data is actually really good. Based on that SPIRIT-1 and SPIRIT-2 clinical trial, the FDA approved this new medication, again, my fimbri, for endometriosis. So here's what it showed. All right, Casey, let's keep going, but we're going to do the data, but do it quick because data is what? Boring. It's kind of boring, but in this <laughs> case, it won't be. All right, so this latest approval is based on one-year efficacy data, again, called SPIRIT-1 and SPIRIT-2 in the Phase three trial that was published in The Lancet. Very quickly, the good news is, is that it dramatically reduced menstrual pain and non-menstrual pain while preserving bone mineral density. That proves that that estradiol component actually does work. Now, at week 24, both SPIRIT trials met the co-primary endpoint with 75% of women who received the medication having a clinically meaningful decline in dysmenorrhea or pain with periods versus only 27% and 30% of women who were in the placebo arms. So all to say that it was a statistically significant difference in pelvic pain. Now, my fibro isn't for everybody, 
but it gives us once again another treatment option for these poor women that are just at wit's end and want to stay away from an injectable like Lupron. Does that make sense? That does make sense. All right. Now, as we get ready to close, it would be great to say endo kind of lives in this little world of reproductive age and that's about it. Once you turn menopausal, right, you're in the clear. Now, we know so much more about this condition because it's not just those little endometriosis implants. It has to do with this global, just inflammatory response. So listen to this, Casey. This is crazy. Just from last year in 2021, data that was published out of ASRM, all right? That's the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. So that's ACOG's sister society. Well, what they found is that having endometriosis during reproductive age, unfortunately, sorry, ladies, here it is, increases the risk of stroke later in life. Wow. That's even after controlling for co-variables. She's like, well, what the heck is that? Why is that? How is that possible? Well, this is actually nothing new. And the idea is, is that endo isn't just these little, little benign little implants that go into the pelvis, but it really does have to do with systemic inflammation. And that inflammation, of course, also increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, including stroke and other cardiovascular manifestations, including heart disease and heart attacks. So please, for the listening podcast family, endometriosis, while devastating and symptoms mainly persist in reproductive age, we've got to educate our patients that it doesn't just end there. It does have significance further down the road. And again, that was published as a cohort of the Nurses Health Study 2 that followed women for 28 years after they had been diagnosed with endo. And they did confirm that they had a higher risk of stroke. Okay, Casey's. now that we're coming to the end, did you learn a little bit about endo today? I definitely did. All right, now a couple of quick disclosures here. We talked about MyFimbri, which is a brand name medication. No, this podcast is not industry sponsored. Maybe it should be. (laughs) (laughs) So no, nobody gave us money to do this. We're just part of medical education. We want to get the word about, about new treatments that are out there. And a couple of disclosures and warnings. Remember, reproductive age, but they do require contraception. And this medication should only be used up to two years. And the reason is, is that bone loss can be a real issue with prolonged use defined as greater than two years. So limit it and make sure the patients are selected appropriately for this medication. But I welcome any new med to help this terrible condition called endometriosis. Casey, you have a good time? I did have a good time. Thank you. And we're also on call today. That's why the audio may sound a little weird because we're literally in the hospital. Do you learn a little bit about OB today? Yes, sir. All right. Well, podcast family, we'll see you next time, maybe with another third-year medical student. (laughs) We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.